Welcome to the latest episode of our Reimagining Capital Projects podcast. I'm Evie John, a senior manager in our housing team working with local government, central government and housing associations on housing and place related issues. And I'm your host for today's episode. The topic for this podcast is what kinds of homes do we need? I'm delighted to be joined by Lord Gavin Barwell, a strategic advisor to PwC, former Minister of State for Housing, and also Chief of Staff to the former Prime Minister, Theresa May, and James Bailey, a director in our deals business who leads our work across the residential market. Welcome both. Thanks, Evie. Pleasure to be with you today. Thanks, Evie. Uh, the UK government's ambition is to build 300,000 new homes a year, a million by the end of this parliament. Um, and we've seen from our own research that issues around affordability are really concerning the public. So if we need to build more, we need to think about affordability. Why are we spending time today talking about the types of homes we should be building? Shall I, shall I go first, Evie? Um, I think probably three obvious reasons. The, the first is it's not just about quantity. Uh, if you think about what we need to do in terms of decarbonising our economy, we need to make sure that the new homes we build uh, are more environmentally sustainable. Uh, if you think about what we've all been through over the last year with the pandemic, it's taught us the importance not just of the homes in which we live, but also of the gardens and public spaces around them. And thinking back to when I was housing minister and trying to make the case for building more housing, I think politically, good design and also well-planned communities can actually help make the case for more housing. So uh, quality and quantity aren't two separate issues. Actually, good quality can help get the homes that we so desperately need built. Yeah, great. Thanks for that, Gavin. And, and just a couple of things to, to, to build on that from my perspective. Uh, firstly, uh, our own future of government research uh, indicates that in every single region across the UK, uh, the vast majority of communities state that access to better quality and more affordable housing is regarded as the most effective means of levelling up and reducing inequality. Uh, so it's really important. Secondly, you know, we need to recognise that within that, you know, levelling up needs to go deeper than just a simple um, north-south divide. You know, we, it needs to address inequalities within regions and within communities. Uh, it needs to address inequalities across different generations. Uh, and if we're going to do that, then what people are telling us is that access to high quality housing is absolutely central to all of that. Thanks, James. Thanks, Gavin. It's a bit of a relief that we are talking about something that's worth talking about. Um, it just, just from both, both of the kind of first things that you've said, it does definitely feel that um, there's a lot of lessons to learn from the past as well in relation to, uh, you know, where we have prioritised volume, output, delivery, we have often sacrificed thinking about the type of homes that we 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 need to build and the role of housing in the economic performance of place. And certainly today, maybe created the regeneration programmes that we're actually looking at. So it would be really good to unpack a little bit more those quality um, and beauty issues that that we're currently talking about. Um, Gavin, if if I can, can I start with you? Um, and just we've we've had the planning white paper, we've had the building better, building beautiful commission, lots of sort of policy terms around beauty and quality. 
What does that really mean in terms of the government agenda? Well, it's, as you say, Evie, it's one of those areas where actually we've got a high degree of confidence about what the government's policy is because the white paper in particular set out quite a lot of detail. Before I run through maybe four or five of the, the key things that were in there, I think it's worth saying this is something that the Secretary of State, Robert Jenrick, is personally really committed to. I think when you hear him talk about this subject, it feels like that bit of the white paper very much is personal to him, comes from him, whereas maybe some of the other elements were, were something that were developed between the department and number 10. But I would say if you if you read the design bit of the white paper, there are probably five key ideas uh, there. The first is that new development shouldn't just uh, do no net harm to the environment, but it should give net gains uh, in terms of both the built and natural environment. So a higher threshold, if you like, that new development has to get over. The second is this idea of local authorities having local design codes that give a clear steer to developers what kind of design uh, they're looking for and tries to ensure that you talked about the lessons of the past, tries to ensure that we don't just get identical homes built across the whole country, but that we're sympathetic to uh, local materials and the local aesthetic, essentially. The third idea is that within each local authority, there should be a chief officer responsible for design. So trying to make sure within our planning system, we develop people who've got real expertise uh, in this area. Uh, the fourth, which I suppose maybe comes back to your original question, Evie, about the link between quality and quantity, is the idea of having some kind of fast track within the planning system for beautiful uh, buildings to try and incentivize developers to uh, to put an emphasis on beauty. And then the final thing, which is more of an internal workings of government issue, is about making design, fitting design in somehow into the strategic objectives of Homes England, which as I'm sure most people listening to this podcast know, is the key government agency that works with the department uh, in trying to get the homes that we need in this country built. Thank you, Gavin. Um, and yeah, I think it's, it's, it's really important uh, to add, Evie, to your point, that, that quality isn't just about beauty. Um, you know, I think it's fair to say you know, that we all have the right to expect that the homes that we live in uh, are both safe and fit for purpose. Um, and, and that's as important as, as, as the beauty aspect. I think you know, in that context, the government's building safety bill is clearly a, a significant step in the right direction. Um, as we know, it's the biggest change to build and safety in over 40 years, uh, and it builds on the findings of the review of building regs and fire safety post Grenfell. Uh, so it's a really important piece of legislation that government is bringing in. Uh, and by placing the emphasis on building safety and resident safety throughout the life cycle of the home, uh, you know, we're hopeful that we should be better placed to make sure that the homes we are building going forward are not just beautiful, but they're also much better quality. I think it's, it's also important to add uh, that while the emphasis of this podcast is on how we create uh, the next generation of housing for the future, uh, you know, we should recognise that a number of existing homes continue to be deemed at risk uh, from a building safety and fire safety perspective. Uh, and we should note that government has made 
five billion pounds available to fund specific works to that homes uh, and that's you know, clearly a, a welcome intervention. It, it does strike me that there's a lot in there from what what James you've just said about safety um, about funding that safety and equally you know what you said Gavin around design and beauty and that 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 does feel like it relies on significant sort of delivery strategic capabilities at a local level do we feel like local government communities house builders have what they need to help i guess translate policy intention into into policy reality so i think if you if you speak to any developer ev they'll say they've got real concerns about uh, the capacity of local authorities, planning departments. Uh, they've been they've been deprived of resource over the years. And a couple of years ago, uh, when I was minister, we gave local authorities power to increase their planning fees a bit to try and address that. But I think there's more the government needs to do to make sure that planning departments right across the country have got the capacity they need to cope with all of this work. And in terms of local communities, I think it's incredibly variable. And one of the real challenges that the government's got here is to make sure that this agenda about beauty, about quality of design, is not just something that's taken up in the more affluent parts of the country where there are plenty of uh, concerned residents associations that will want to get involved in this debate, but it's something that's universal, that, that makes a real difference to the kind of buildings that we're building in every single corner of the country. Do you think there's a role there for Homes England? I mean, we're, we're very quick in the housing sector to jump to investment in uh, quite understandably in, in capital assets, physical assets. Is there a role for Homes England to perhaps invest in, in capabilities in generating some of that expertise that's required? Definitely, definitely a role to invest in capabilities. Whether that should be part of Homes England's remit, that's a really interesting question. Uh, the government has just asked Peter Freeman, the chair of Homes England, to conduct a review of how the agency is, is best supporting government policy. And that's maybe a really good idea to feed into that review. Do we want an agency that's really narrowly focused on getting the homes built, or do we actually see it potentially having a role in helping to improve capability both in communities and in, in local authorities? A really interesting suggestion. Great. Thanks, Gavin. Um, just want to cycle back to to actually something that you touched on earlier in relation to sort of environmental commitments and um you know the government's priority in relation to net zero housing has often had an uneasy relationship with environmental um challenges and concerns given that that house building itself can be quite a destructive process what do you think the housing sector can do to sort of mitigate some of those consequences? Yeah, I think it's a, it's a really good question, Evie, uh, and I think quite helpful to, to set the scene a bit. Um, relevant there is the fact that the UK is the first major economy to set a legally binding commitment to net zero emissions by 2050. Uh, and clearly getting there is going to take uh, a lot of work, uh, a lot of investment. Uh, I think PwC have estimated that it will require about 400 billion pounds worth of investment in, in new low carbon and digital infrastructure over the next 10 years. Uh, and clearly within that, you know, housing is going to be a key area where, um, where attention needs to be placed. 
not least because um, about, it's estimated that about 22% of all greenhouse gas emissions comes from heating and powering homes. Uh, but also we need to recognise that the homes that we're building today are the homes that are going to be with us in 2050 and beyond, and therefore investing in them in the right way today is going to be absolutely essential. Uh, and, and to that end, you know, in my view anyway, the, the, the government's aim for housing to be zero carbon ready by 2025, I think represents a huge opportunity for the sector. Uh, I think to deliver housing that's producing you know, 75 to 80% less CO2 emissions, uh, make homes warmer and reduce customers' energy bills. That'll require a, you know, a, a rethink around how we do that. Um, and I'm excited to see you know, the opportunities that creates for things like uh, modern methods of construction, uh, which has always been a, a feature of the market, um, but, but perhaps hasn't moved into the mainstream as much as we needed to. I think it's a great opportunity for that to happen now. Uh, and I also think it, it's really exciting for the uh, opportunities for collaboration between sort of traditional construction sector uh, along with the energy and sustainability sectors and actually how can those come together to um, rethink uh, what it is to be a house and, and what it is to make a home and ultimately create the next generation of housing in the context of meeting those um, 2050 targets. Yeah, and of course, in addition to the work that we need to do on improving the environmental performance of the new homes we build, Actually, when it comes to net zero, the biggest job is to decarbonize all of our existing stock. Most of the homes that we're going to have in this country in 2050 are already standing today. And many of them were built quite a long time ago to, to much lower standards. So there's a huge job to do there. And the Chancellor launched this uh, scheme to fund some of that work, uh, a short term scheme as part of the stimulus. Uh, back last March and take up has not been great and it's not been extended. So the government really needs to think about how it's going to work with people to encourage them to make the adaptions to their homes that are needed to, to get them up to scratch. So from the discussion we've been having, it does feel that policy making in housing can be very narrowly focused on bricks and mortar, but then you end up in a place of unintended consequences as we have in, in sort of this, some of the environmental performances of the homes we've built in the past. Um, but also you, you miss the opportunities to achieve wider policy goals, um, such as net zero. I think this, this is also relevant in the wider placemaking agenda. Gavin, what do you see as a relationship housing has with placemaking and place? So I think this is a this is an idea that has really grown in recent years that that actually and it, it, again it links back to your first question uh, about how do we get the number of homes built that we needed that actually if you can design good overall places that's going to make it much more likely that residents are going to support uh, planning applications and clearly new communities are not on their own going to be the sole solution to our housing needs but they're going to be an important contributor to it. And you can think of all kinds of areas of public policy where placemaking can make a really significant contribution. So if you think about what we we're just talking about in terms of net zero, it's not just about the environmental performance of the homes we live in. It's about trying to ensure that more of us live close to where we shop, where we go out, where we work, uh, in order that you don't get the same level of emissions from uh, people traveling significant distances every day. If you think about public safety and the government's ambitions to uh, to reduce crime, 
and people feel safer in their communities. A lot of that is about the way communities are places are designed at the outset in order to uh, avoid features that, that leave people vulnerable potentially to crime. And if you think about the, the sort of wider issue of social cohesion, intergenerational relationships, you know, that is all about trying to build mixed communities where you've got people of different age groups, people of uh, different uh, social classes living together in viable communities rather than people separated uh, into into different areas of a of a local authority. So this this place making agenda, I think, is something that has rightly come right at the agenda, not just of local authorities when they're thinking about their role in the planning system, but also increasingly uh, of developers. I, you know, I think you know housing and the types of homes that we do provide are clearly essential to the you know creating positive, vibrant and inclusive communities, uh, which which has to be. The, the aspiration and ambition. I think from a placemaking perspective, uh, in my view, there's, kind of, there's lots of ways you can look at that. Um, two areas that are particularly interesting to me as, as kind of trends, which I think will take root. Uh, the first is, you know, it's really important to you know, offer a greater choice of tenure. And I think as, you, as you've alluded to there, Gavin, uh, it's essential to create genuinely mixed communities to be able to offer housing to a, a range of different tenants um, and, and different demand profiles and so on. Uh, and, and you know, speaking to a number of clients of mine you know, around the importance of a, a strong rental offering in particular, you know, things like single family housing in suburban and urban fringe locations, which are available for rent, uh, they provide the opportunity for, um, for mobility, uh, and, 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 but also for, for, for kind of families to, to, to settle into those areas, but rent rather than buy. I think, you know, th th there seems to be a growing recognition of that as a, as a part of the market, which you know, is undersupplied uh, and which can be increased going forward. Um, the second bit for me is, you know, we should also be thinking about the role that housing can play in the regeneration and, and revitalization of our town centers and high streets, uh, and, you know, where we can think about you know, repurposing some of the assets, some of the community assets uh, and so on that we have in those areas, repurposing them towards housing uh, so we can continue to um, keep those places as, as areas that we, we all enjoy living, working and playing in. Uh, you know, I think it's got an important, important role to play uh, in, in that placemaking story going forward. Yeah, I mean, uh, there's so much um, to explore in what you've, you've both said. I also I also think housing has sort of a very direct or can play a very direct role in the economic um, performance of local places by just providing good quality jobs and opportunity to build skills. Um, and that is definitely particularly as we're looking at um, like the economic challenges that are sort of laid out to us following the pandemic that housing actually may well be best placed to play it, have a role in, in addressing some of those things. So I mean, we've had a really sort of wide ranging conversation around the type of homes that we think should be being built in the future. But there were lots of different sort of elements of what we've talked about. What, what do you think is the key thing to prioritise? How do we, we balance all of those um, opportunities that we've talked through so i think there are some synergies uh, as, as we've said as we've discussed it there are some things where 
actually doing better on, on beauty, on design, uh, on thinking about placemaking isn't in conflict with trying to build more homes. It actually helps you to get greater local support for house building. But there are definitely some tensions and we should just be honest about that up front. I think that safety has to come first. It's you know, a legal requirement to get that right. And it's taken too long, if we're honest, for uh, the government to address the properties around the country uh, that needed work in, you know, in the uh, aftermath of the Grenfell fire. So that's got to be uh, come first. Then I think the trade-off in terms of the, uh, the decarbonisation of the existing stock and uh, the environmental quality of what we, what we build new, that is the one that the government really needs to get its head around. Because you know, if I think about, I sit on the board of a housing association, and if the government doesn't provide some financial help with retrofitting, that is bound to have an impact on the, on the number of new homes that that association can build every year going forward. So there's a clear trade-off there where the government is going to have to think about resources. And also, I think in terms of supply chains, we've got to think through, if we've got a huge retrofitting program going on, is that going to take away some of the people that would usually be involved in building new homes? And how do we make sure that we've got the workforce that can cope with all of these priorities at the same time? Yeah, I agree with, with, with pretty much all of that. The, the one thing I would add, though, is that it's important to recognise that uh, priorities will be different across the various communities across the country. Uh, and we do need to develop solutions that, that recognise that. Uh, and, and as I look at it, you know, if, if we focus on the kinds of outcomes we want to create um, for those communities, with those communities, then we do have to think through the types of partnership that uh, we need to put in place to enable that. Uh, and, you know, I'm thinking, how do we um, you know, use the public sector, whether that's central government, um, agencies like CLG, Homes England, um, or local government and local authorities? You know, what role can they play uh, as conveners, as planning authorities, as enablers, um, you know, to work with communities, but also importantly, to work with house builders and developers uh, and investors to, to make sure that you know we're bringing together the right skill sets to be able to create the right homes in the right places uh, and importantly with the right carbon credentials to make sure that you know as we're thinking about placemaking uh, and all the the, the aspects of, of quality and beauty that we're working together with, with the full range of resources available to us uh, in in the right types of partnerships to to enable all of that so we've had a really wide ranging rich debate um it does feel like we need another podcast on this just to talk through some of the levelling up um, issues that have been raised, the issues around uh, beauty in place. Um, but I just wanted to thank you so much, Gavin and James, for a fascinating discussion. And of course, to everyone who's been listening, um, like many of the issues we discuss on this Reimagining Capital Project series, the challenges and opportunities we've explored in the podcast are just part of, a, a, of the beginning of a larger conversation. Uh, so do look out for more content on our website at www.pwc.co.uk forward slash real assets. And finally, don't forget to subscribe to this podcast series. Thanks, everyone, and see you next time.